Welcome to the Civil Service World podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Susanna. And each week we'll be exploring an issue that matters to civil servants in their professional lives. In this episode, we're going to be discussing future of public service delivery. In particular, we're discussing a new model for service delivery in which teams of self-managed professionals work within a particular community to design and deliver services around individuals. We're going to think about where this model is already working and discuss a new report which is setting out how it could be used in children's social care in the UK. And to discuss all of that, we have with us Ryan Wise, who's a social worker at the Social Care Institute for Excellence, and Katie Rose, a programme manager from the Centre for Public Impact, who's been working on a report with the charity Frontline, thinking about how this model could work in children's social care. Ryan, start with you. Why did you become a social worker? I think, not to give you um, a detailed career history, but um, I think mostly in my 20s, I was unsure of what I wanted to do, but there was always a passion to kind of work with people and support social justice. So my mum's a social worker. She's worked with adults with learning disabilities. And I think it took me a while to get there, but I thought, can I work in a role where I can actually affect change uh, with children and families and give them the opportunities that I've luckily had? And how did your expectation of social work match the reality? Well, I don't think I was overly naive. I knew it was going to be tough. I knew it was going to be challenging. I think the thing that surprised me was the barriers. So there were so many barriers to actually doing what you're supposed to do. So actually working directly with a child and family is actually more difficult than it seems because you've stopped by so many barriers such as bureaucracy and doing things that take you away from that meaningful work with them. Could you give some examples of bureaucracy that you faced in the system? Yeah, sure. So I know probably most people have heard of this one and it crosses different sectors. Paperwork. So often I I found myself navigating and reporting into the system rather than actually going out and being with children and families. Specifically, you often had to require management sign-off for such small little things. So I remember on a Friday afternoon running around trying to get £30 signed off so I could buy a travel card for a 17-year-old mother I was working with. She was quite young and becoming increasingly agitated because she wanted to travel and see her family. And having to deal with that, but then navigating kind of 50 layers of management, well, what it seemed like, it's a bit of an overreaction, was just ridiculous. Just a, something so simple that was out of my control. So tell us, Ryan, how you came to be involved with this work around a new way of delivering social care. I was in practice for four years, but I felt that I couldn't affect the change I wanted to. So if I couldn't affect it in the practice that I was doing with children and families, how else could I try and affect change on a more systematic level? So I work for the Social Care Institute for Excellence and we're involved in different ways of being innovative and creative, but also I've been fortunate to come through the Frontline Programme, which is a new approach to educating and training social workers. And what Frontline did was draw together some social work voices to think about okay, if we were going to design the system differently and actually allow social workers to work directly with families, not rocket science, how could we do that? And what what could we learn um, from others who have been creative and innovative across the world? Okay, and so the model that you've learned from in this particular blueprint is the Bertzog model, which is a Dutch care home provider. And they basically are community teams of self-managed nurses who want to build relationships with the individuals first. They say first coffee and then care. And then after they've built those relationships, they work with the individuals, the networks around those individuals to deliver 
support and care that they need in their community. Katie, can you tell us how does that model, or how do you envisage that model, transforming UK children's social care? Yeah, so we we started by looking at models like Birdsog, as you say, and the trend that we're noticing in public services at the moment that's actually global outside the UK as well as in it, which at CPI is something we've called the shared power principle. And that is around organisations and governments thinking about how they might share decision-making power and give more freedom responsibility to public service delivery professionals. And we kind of came across organisations that were getting rid of a lot of the bureaucracy around decision-making, a lot of the paperwork that Ryan referenced. And we thought there must be a lot of good stuff there that that children's social care could be inspired by because of the issues that, that Ryan mentioned and that social workers everywhere that we've heard speak about. So we thought there was a lot of potential to think about how this shared power principle might be applied to children's social care to really get rid of a lot of that bureaucracy that's stopping this meaningful work with children and families. Could you say a bit more about how your model, your proposed model would work? So I understand there's a family facing team of eight social workers of different levels of experience and they're expected to self-manage and they obviously have help from an insight team who are experienced professionals. Is that right? I I won't do your job for you, but perhaps you could say a bit more about how the team works and how accountability works in a flat structure so I think at the heart of it really we designed it around thinking about how you would enable social workers to have good relationships with children and families so that was kind of where we started and therefore at the heart of this model are these family facing teams of social workers that you that you spoke about and they are self-managed so they hold the majority of decision making rights over their cases and they can make the decisions that you know frustrate so many social workers around not being able to get five pounds signed off and 30 pounds signed off so they can make all of those decisions they work on geographic patches so they are location specific and that is because enabling these community relationships and and drawing resources from the community is really important especially in social work because it's such a multidisciplinary work And they also, in terms of the way that supervision and oversight is done, it's very much done from the team. So that's why we have this eight-person team, because it enables them to kind of reflect on decisions and enables that support system that right now is only provided by one person, their manager. And we heard from a lot of social workers that actually it would be amazing to have more than just one person to reflect on and see practice with. So there are those kind of family-facing teams at the heart of this. And then there's this broader support structure that sits around them, which involves an enabler team that helps teams run effectively and efficiently, an insight team, as you say, that is focused on helping social workers do good practice, and then a strategy team who provide the kind of necessary checks and balances on those decisions that are most important for children and families that are clearly defined so they are, there's no decision right creep in this model but also most importantly I think is that they protect the whole culture that is at the heart of this model which is around trust and support of the social worker and it is up to those local authority leaders that sit in the strategy team to protect that and really enable social workers to do their best work. So we want to talk a little bit about how that will interact with central government agencies But I want to ask both of you first what thinking you've done about how we actually make this happen, because I think everyone would agree that family-centred and empowering the front line, those are principles lots of people say are great. How do you actually affect change? Because everyone should read the report, by the way, which is available from the Centre for Public Impact, because you go into a lot of detail and it's actually a really big culture shift. 
There is a real sense of optimism in the sector at the moment. There are, of course, major challenges. But there is a resurgence of what we call relationship-based social work. So actually getting down into practice and kind of working with families, understanding their problems and and centering back on the community, we're seeing that more and more in local authorities. And they developed something called a practice model, which is a shared language, a shared approach to how they want to practice with children and families. And what we're seeing is children and families are becoming involved in how that looks and how that is shaped. So I think the point that I just wanted to make before handing over to Katie is that actually there is fertile ground here. There is more of a focus on practice and how we work alongside children and families. So the next natural step for me is thinking about our internal structure and our internal organisation. How does that enable or actually put barriers to doing that practice that we're more or less all aligned with about what it should look like? I think Ryan's right. I mean, it's been amazing speaking to so many people in the sector. We've spoken to, you know, over 80 social workers and system leaders and those from outside the sector, like in Ofsted or in lots of other professional bodies, as well as people in the Department for Education. And I think actually the positivity that has really shone through of trying to enable relationships and create the conditions for social workers to do their best practice is there. And I think that's why the blueprint is getting a lot of traction because it presents a realistic way for a local authority to change the way that it delivers its social care system at no additional cost that works within existing regulation and legislation. And I think it really is, it does provide a realistic path forward. I think it does need any local authority that's going to take this on needs to work with the children and families that exist in the local authority to help make this a very smooth transition to make sure that it addresses their needs. And that's something that we really highlight in the report. But also it it does need kind of committed and courageous leadership from a local authority level because this is a big change that we're suggesting. It's not outside of the direction of travel of the sector as a whole, but it does suggest a system transformation and it needs to be protected and nurtured by those at the top. That all sounds great, obviously. Even if you did get buy-in from the whole of the council, because obviously it's not just the team of social workers, you have to have all the partner agencies that help child protection cases on board with this as well. Don't you think that central government and the way things are currently run would be a big barrier? And, you know, what you're essentially asking of central government is to abandon control of local councils, or that's how it might seem to government departments. What would good look like to the outer system outside this little utopia of a self-managed team? Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting question. I think because of the trend that has hit the UK government with some force, which is new public management, and by that I mean the set of ideas that has come really from the private sector around how to manage and, and control public service outcomes, I think that has kind of created a very much an environment of mistrust of the public service professional. Not intentionally, but because we are working to targets that are set at a national level, the social worker is kind of naturally restricted from making any meaningful decisions because they always have to look to the Department of Education for what data they want, etc. So I think it's been something that has perpetuated a culture of mistrust of the social worker in our case. Yeah, and I think what we're suggesting is that this model or this this restructure, it's, it's not only that, it is a shift in thinking and it's a shift in culture centred on trust, but it will operate within the same legislative kind of requirements of Ofsted. So that will remain the same. But how I see it is that the relationship with data will change because at the moment, 
This excessive focus on data comes from the very top and filters down management to the social worker's day-to-day role. So you'll have a social worker, and I've had it myself, where I'm more concerned about whether or not I've put a note on the system compared to whether or not I've actually been to see a child and have a conversation with them about how their day's gone. We have one of the world's safest child protection systems, and we're proud of that, and we rightly should be, but it's not just all about safety at the expense of what actually children and families need. We can still be kind of safe in what we do with having greater trust and autonomy. It's not kind of throwing the rule book out, it's just shifting how we conceive of practice and conceive of how we work with each other. I think also in the reports, one of the things that really struck me was the feedback that actually social workers would feel safer in this model and they would feel they were having more supervision from their peers within that small team. Could you tell us a little bit about how this model would actually change things on the ground for the social workers and the families? Yeah, so I was having a conversation with a social worker who's in practice in in London and and how he put it was that he would have more licence to be creative and kind of to kind of think about and use his own professional judgment to think about what might work with a family. And that's not to be kind of dictating to a family, but the social worker is the person who is going out to the homes, going out to the schools, going to the meetings. They know what this family needs so they can make decisions and kind of have the practice that they want to have. They don't want it shaped by external forces who aren't meeting that family and are quite disconnected. So I think from a social worker's perspective, they would be more in tune with the values of why they came into the profession. They'd be able to advocate, they'd be able to empower, they'd be able to work alongside families and be more collaborative. And I think just to pick up on that as well, something that we heard from speaking to a lot of social workers as part of this project was that part of what the current managers offer is obviously so valuable in terms of giving that oversight and supervision and ability to reflect on decisions. And what was key to this model is not to reduce the amount of oversight and supervision that is provided, but actually, if anything, give more time to that and enable social workers as this team, as this family-facing team, to be able to prioritise that more so. Because right now, there's one manager managing so many social workers and they can only give like an hour or two hours a week Mm. to a social worker to be able to reflect on their decisions. Whereas in our model, when we tested it with a local authority and modelled out how their existing system would transition if we did do what we're suggesting in the blueprint, we found that actually they could spend more time in supervision and kind of team meetings to Is discuss it 50% cases. more time? Yeah, it's 50% more time that they can spend in team meetings because they are not reporting up and navigating the bureaucracy. Can I just play devil's advocate and kind of imagine that we are, there aren't eight of us in this room, but imagine that we're in one of those team meetings. So you've got, everyone's a member of the family facing team. You've got some newly qualified social workers and some with years of experience who were in on the managerial ladder who've been reabsorbed back into frontline social work. So they all sit in the same team. Do you think there might be kind of tensions with people, if it is a completely flat hierarchy, people marking each other's homework? Also, wouldn't the senior members of the team with more years of experience, wouldn't they be tempted to act as managers, even though they weren't actually supposed to be managers to the less experience well I mean human nature might kind of play a part in the dynamics of this team yeah and I think from my perspective from from practice that 
interpersonal dynamics or relationships are at the very heart of what we do. And that's not just kind of our relationships with children and families, it's with each other. So I suppose like, yes, I agree with you, that could happen. But it also happens in the current system as it is. So are we always going to have that kind of thing to think about and consider about how we work with each other? I suppose what I would suggest in terms of this model is that the model encourages the team to be very reflective about how they work together. They're constantly thinking about what is our kind of culture? What is our ethos as a team? And also you have the opportunity to bring in the insight team, which is a kind of third party in a way to offer that independent facilitation for conversation, but also reflection and critical challenge. So I think it's going to play out. But actually, that could be positive and beneficial because they'll get through that as a team together. So they'll have that kind of unity. And I also think just in terms of protecting the overall culture that needs to be in place for this to really work, that is something that we think is the strategy team's job, who are the former local authority leadership. And I think if they see these dynamics playing out, as you say, which might be natural, I think it's really on them to have the hard conversations with the former managers to say, your job is to support everyone else in the team now, not manage them. And I think that's a fundamental shift they need to protect. So this might be a reflection of the kind of culture of mistrust that you spoke about. But I think some people hearing all of this will say, well, that's great if you have a really high quality social worker who's going to build these relationships and manage their themselves effectively. Is there a concern that we don't have enough of that kind of social worker to effect this change? Yeah, so this is definitely something that came up from a lot of conversations we had with people from across the sector. And I think that the first reflection is that when we spoke to a lot of team managers from all different local authorities, actually, they were quite strongly emphasising the fact that they do feel that a lot of the majority of their social workers would meet the high bar of quality that is required in this model. And it is a high bar because we are giving a lot more decision making power to social workers to be able to make decisions for families. So I think, yeah, it's really important to say that a lot of the team managers that we spoke to feel that the quality is there. And actually, it's the system that is making out that social workers aren't good enough to do this work because we're fundamentally disempowering them from the beginning because we're not allowing them to be creative with practice and actually work with families. That said, it was still raised with us that there is a minority that would not be good enough to work in the system. But I think there are ways that we can bring those people along by training and by enabling this peer supervision and actually learning from managers that are now converted into practice and working alongside those that might need more help early on. So we can definitely bring them along. And also fundamentally, we should structure a system around enabling the majority of social workers that are good enough to do their best work with families and try to do our best job to enable that to happen. All I would add on on that very briefly is that it's not necessarily um, a capability issue. It's more of a cultural issue, which we've touched on um, previously in this conversation. So it's about how can we promote this way of working and kind of get alongside social workers to have them invested I think that's the that's the challenge in terms of kind of sharing with people who might be a bit unsure about how this might benefit or help really kind of working with them to say that look this is something that could really benefit your practice but also children and families because I think day in day out social workers know how to build relationships with families but they have been become stuck in a system over years and years and that takes some unlocking And so I think actually the foundations are there in in social workers. But yes, there might be a few that might not want to work in this way. And we have to think about how best to navigate that. So your model is bringing a lot more social workers back to the front line and keeping them there. 
what does that mean for pay progression? Because traditionally, the way of getting more money is to move into managerial positions. So how would that work in a flat hierarchy? So the model we've designed, it was a conscious decision to essentially think about how a local authority in with its existing payroll and headcount would transition to the model that we're proposing, because we wanted to show that it was something that a local authority could do tomorrow. So in terms of the blueprint, there would be no change to just because you are converting former managers to social workers or practicing social workers, there would be no change in their pay in our current model. That said, it does suggest to a local authority that was doing this whether you've got the right money in the right places if management is being paid too much. And that is something that a few of the social workers that we spoke to said. In terms of career development, we this is something that we touched on because I think the way that career development is currently in the sector is that you move out of practice when you become more experienced and naturally get paid more into those management positions I think this is challenging that fundamental premise that career development needs to be out of practice and I think it would be for a local authority that wants to pilot this to think about how they would provide those kind of five ten year in practice career development ladders and that is something they would need to work on but there is some thoughts in the blueprint about how you would think about career development within practice not outside of it. I think children's social care is such a, a rich kind of sector and profession and there's, there's lots of different moving parts that a social worker could become involved in. There's like kind of students, there's different practice specialisms such as domestic violence, different types of abuse, but also different types of affecting change, more therapeutic ways. So there's lots of scope to think about how you could keep continuing professional development within practice and as Katie said, not the kind of traditional it has to be out of it. So I again I recommend reading the blueprint to anyone because I think it's striking how honest you've been about actually the difficulties about moving to this transition that it will require difficult conversations about performance that it's not necessarily going to save you money in the short term it's be the same financial envelope and obviously a better use of money but also there's stuff in there which is kind of will make people I think reflect on their own they may not be children's social care workers but how could this model work where they are on the front line mm. i know at cpi you've been doing lots of work around shared power principles what's your thinking around other sectors or other parts of the public service which could be ripe for this kind of change i think at the heart of this really is finding ways to create the environment to allow those people that are the most equipped to help the people they work with do their best work. So in this case, it's been working with social workers to help local authorities find ways to create the environment for social workers to do their best work. But I think that does apply to any other public service delivery or policy, really, because it's about finding ways to share power and put decision-making power where it should be so that those that have the most information about how to create change can do so and have the right capabilities to do so, the right training to do so, and have the right power to do so. So I do really think there are lots of lessons for other sectors as well as national government. And, you know, at CPI, we're doing a lot of work in national government with leaders and how to think about leadership and how to think about it as leadership, not management. So I think there are lots of ways that you can enact some of the principles that lie at the heart of this, which is around trusting public service professionals to do their best work and finding ways to create relationships that can really translate. I think not to be too social worky about things, but a core concept of social work is power and, and how we utilise the power that we have in the nature of our role. And I think 
kind of moving out of practice and, and going to more kind of thinking about policy and, and innovation in the sector, I think the idea about reflecting on our own relationship with power can cross so many sectors and, and so many kind of businesses, organisations and all that. So I do think that I would encourage people to think about how power raise its head in your organisation or in your kind of team or in terms of your day-to-day work and, and what would a re- different relationship with power look like? What a question to end I know, <laughs> no, quite, I like it. It's quite dramatic, <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed it. No, it's great. Well, Ryan and Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this time. But before we go, here are some more of our favourite terminological inexactitudes taken from Civil Service World's Handy Guide to Civil Service Euphemisms and Jargon. First we have... This has resource implications, which roughly translate as We would have to spend some money, so it's best you know now that this scheme will never happen. Which is in itself another way of saying The cost-benefit analysis doesn't quite stack up. Which we can usually take to mean Nice try, but I'm axing your vanity project. Ouch. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts about anything we've discussed in today's show, let us know on Twitter via at CSWNews. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.